Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast from the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. You've heard it before. You are what you eat. But just what does that really mean? This January, noted science historian Stephen Shapin came to the Academy to talk about the long history of nutrition. Shapin, who is a professor at Harvard University, is especially interested in the once popular medical tradition known as dietetics though he's quick to note that most of us have never heard of it before, not even as students at Harvard. My students come in thinking that this is a course about how to lose weight, live forever, and be personally attractive. But of course, it's not. And when I tell them that it isn't, masses of them get up and leave. And the ones that are left, I then say what it is that dietetics is, uh, or was. And as it turns out, dietetics was a pretty big deal. So, I caught up with Shapin over the phone, after his lecture, to get a deeper glimpse into this antiquated way of thinking about nutrition, and to see what sort of influence it has left over our modern way of thinking about our food, our bodies, and ourselves. I think much of the vocabulary of dietetics is still kicking around in our culture, even though our nutritional experts rarely use this sort of language. Dietetics, which was also known as hygiene or regimen, was the way most people thought about nutrition from antiquity through the 18th century, before it was gradually replaced by modern nutrition science. According to Shapin, dietetics was a way of maintaining yourself in health, rather than a diagnosing tool or a cure for ailments. It offered a way of thinking about personal nutrition and health as a fundamental virtue. Uh, if you look at how dietetics gave prescriptions uh, to, to be a healthy person, it turns out to be exactly the same as the advice you would give someone who wanted to be a virtuous person. So the key uh, in dietetics was moderation. It was the golden mean. If the choice was between two extremes, eat a whole lot on the one hand, and asceticism, eat scarcely anything, the, the dietetic advice tended to be eat a moderate amount, be, be temperate. Of course, the way dietetics went about this may be odd to our ears. That's because foods were thought to have specific properties, which came from a combination of elements, elements the four elements, which were earth, air, fire, and water, uh, and, qualities, and qualities, which were hot and cold and moist and dry. And you had to strike a balance between each of these. Now, the point about a world of qualities in which your food was assessed is that these sorts of things were available to essentially anyone you can, by the senses, determine whether something is hot or moist or, or cold or, or dry. And this way of thinking about food is very different from our modern world of nutrition science. When we enter a world of nutrition science, the world of, for example, the nutrition facts label on a tin of beans, what we see, or I have a tin of beans right here, we have a series of constituents, not qualities, cholesterol, sodium, proteins, vitamin A, vitamin C, iron, calcium. Now, in a world like that, the conditions of our knowing what our food is like and contains is trusting scientific expertise. We have no independent access to cholesterol or to saturated or trans uh, fats. What I'm trying to say, therefore, is that the world of constituents, the world of the nutrition facts, labels, 
value or the uh, the number of calories that you might take in a day, but it doesn't contain the idea of moderation. Therefore, it's cut free of the language of practical ethics and, and virtue. And why do you think this died out with dietetics? I'm not really that confident or, or happy with the explanations of why. I think you can say something about the how, and that is as science changed and moved away from four elements and four qualities to the, the language of underlying chemical constituents and powers as, as in qualities, so it provided medicine with a scientific language. This is the world that we're used to. We don't expect our we expect our doctors to uh, keep us in health or to cure us. We don't expect medicine to give us answers to moral decisions, to decisions about how it's virtuous to lead one's life. We just don't expect that of our scientific and medical experts. That is not the same thing as to say that people don't look to food and drink as containing moral messages. We tend not to uh, approve of people who are, are gluttons. We tend to find uh, dietary asceticism to some extent remarkable. So food and drink are important features of how we make our, our moral judgments, but we just don't expect our, our scientists and physicians to make those decisions. So what do you think is more the hallmark of modern attitudes toward diet? I think more than anything, the hallmark of modern attitude to uh, decisions about what we should eat and drink is, is their incoherence. One of the things that strikes me, we read in the newspapers that a certain constituent is good for us or bad for us, and then months later we read that the study has been overthrown or undermined. And, and I think that that kind of um, pinball bouncing around the, the move from one expert solution to a healthy diet to another expert solution to a healthy diet. I think that's the best way of describing our, our modern attitude as lacking a stable center. And what was that center for dietetics? It was, as I tried to say, the idea of moderation, the idea of the golden mean. One of the things, again, that was remarkable about this language that was both scientific, as it were, and, and moral is there was also a shared vocabulary between physicians and lay people. Uh, just as you could tell that foods were hot and cold and moist and dry, and that your temperament was hot, cold, moist, or dry, so you could tell what foods, in an interesting phrase, agreed with you and what did not. So the experience of taste and the experience of digestion were available to essentially everyone to be their own physician and so the, the experience of foods as they pass through you was, in, in this culture, considered to be a reliable guide to whether they were good for you uh, or not. So again, this goes back to the sort of tactile versus, or like sensory versus. Yes, it does. But it also, I mean, my mother, for example, used to say, uh, I like oysters, but they don't like me. Mm -hmm. In other words, what she said uh, that these, you know, the seafood doesn't agree with me, which is exactly the language of dietetics. She didn't mean anything uh, cosmological about that, but she was using exactly the same phrases and exactly the same language that in traditional dietetics was considered to be, be quite important. If foods uh, didn't taste good on your tongue or if they gave you indigestion, it was considered that their qualities did not agree with or match 
think it was more beneficial to have this greater connection with what food did to your body under dietetics. And well, I, I, beneficial is, is more than I know because this is where I plead. I'm an historian and, and not a physician, so I'm not giving advice on what people should eat. Uh, that said, and I'm perfectly happy to, to speak as a, a layperson, uh, I think uh, a healthy dose of skepticism about the status of dietary expertise in our society, especially it's in its heterogeneity and often conflicting nature, is not a bad idea, and that it might be quite a good idea, echoing the late Julia Child, to observe balance, variety, and moderation. I don't think we have the kind of solidity of uh, nutritional knowledge that can that easily trump the old advice of balance, variety, and moderation. That That's, as it were, one man's opinion. And, I mean, Julia Child is a chef, but do you think that there's any experts or diets you can sort of point to that have also taken a look more at moderation or at least have taken a line more in tune with this historical perspective of dietetics? I mean, I know well, that no one really talks about the humors yeah. anymore or anything. No one talks about the humors anymore, and, and let's say that's, that's no scientific loss. Uh, I am struck that as you go up and down the bookshelves, and these vast bookshelves that contain diet books and self-help health books, uh, they do have a faddish uh, quality about them. I, th- I can think of few worse ideas for getting a book published uh, than recommending balance, variety, and moderation. It doesn't sell. Yeah, you yeah. Know, we expect a grapefruit diet or a champagne diet or an all-protein, no-carb diet, etc. Yeah, sort of these silver bullet diets. Yes. We, we, we pay our money for silver bullets uh, solutions. The point about balance, variety, and moderation is quite the opposite of a silver bullet. So I, I'm not surprised that there are no or practically no diet books recommending that. I, I, I make one exception because it's now over 50 years old. Uh, the late Ansel Keys, famous for many reasons, but one is for his recommendation of what became known as the Mediterranean diet. And I should make one other observation. I think most people would say that our most influential dietary voice in modern American society is not a nutrition scientist or a physician at all. It's Michael Pollan, who's a professor mm-hmm. of journalism. And uh, when Michael Pollan wrote his little book after the omnivorous dilemma called In Defense of Food, it was uh, quite close to uh, Ansel Keys. Mediterranean diet. Thought you should eat probably less. He thought you should eat mostly plants. He thought you should probably eat foods, as he put it, that your great grandmother would have recognized as food. Um, it's it's an interesting voice, and it may be partly a reaction to the proliferation of scientific expertise in our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's sort of this trend toward you know rooftop farming and getting back to real food lately, yes. like the slow food movement, that sort of thing. That's right, that's right. And I think that that kind of voice combines the aesthetic, the nostalgic, and some instrumental sense of what is good for our bodies and we hope good for the planet. So it's a, a re, if I can use some jargon, a re-coalescing of the, uh, the scientific and the moral that we're seeing, I think. Well, it was really great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time.
download Chapin's full lecture on our website at scienceandthecity.org. Science in the City is a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this podcast and the rest of our programming. As always, we'd love your feedback, so shoot us an email to scienceinthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month.